Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington D.C. And I'm Alona Ferber, special projects editor in London. It's Thursday, the third of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula, defeated Jair Bolsonaro to become president again in Brazil. We arrive at the end of one of the most important elections for our country's history. One that put face-to-face two different opposed country projects. And today, the only winner is the Brazilian people. Bolsonaro has conceded, but will his supporters? Israel also went to the polls. The big winner, the far right. We also take a question on political violence in the United States. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, so... Jeremy, Alona, thank you both so much for being here today. We have a bit of an elections extravaganza on the podcast. Before we get into it, very quick reminder, listeners, that my pop-up pod, Nationalism Reimagined, is up now. The first three episodes you can listen to wherever podcasts are found, (laughs) wherever you get your podcasts. The most recent one is on India, and the next one, which will be out on Tuesday, is on the United States. So catch up. And now we can go right into it. We have a lot to get through. So as Jeremy said at the top, Lula defeated Bolsonaro to become president again in Brazil. Bolsonaro has reportedly accepted defeat and in fact, asked his supporters to clear blockades that they had made along the highway, clearing the way symbolically and literally for Lula's return. Jeremy, very quickly, can you remind, so obviously we know Bolsonaro, the right-wing president of Brazil. Can you sort of remind our listeners why Lula's comeback is just that? 
Well, yes, Lula was president of Brazil from 2003 to the end of 2010, which is a time remembered relatively fondly in Brazil because it coincided with a big commodities boom. And Lula used the presidency to channel that prosperity into welfare programs that helped lift millions of Brazilians out of poverty. After that, his party got caught up in a series of election scandals, and he even himself went to prison for a period before the convictions relating to him specifically were overturned. And that then allowed him to run again for president against the far-right Jair Bolsonaro. The headline from the election, I think, is that it was closer than many had expected. A lot of the polling was suggesting that Lula would be far ahead, perhaps even winning in the first round by getting over 50%. In fact, the first round was closer than expected, 43% to 48%. So they went to the runoff, which happened last Sunday, as we record this. And Lula narrowly won that with 50.9% of the vote. So under one point swing from a, a Bolsonaro win. And how, I mean, how did he do it? How did Lula pull it out and win this election? I mean, I've got a piece about this in this week's issue of The New Statesman, in which I talk about his ability to build a broad front. This is obviously a bigger topic than just one pertaining to Brazil, because there are authoritarian leaders in power in many democracies around the world, and it's a big conundrum. How do those or defenders of liberal democracy best combat them at the polls and, and more widely? Now, Lula's approach, I mean, I notice it's being, it's being hailed by some, including the former British Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, as, as a sort of victory for a kind of very focused sort of left-wing platform. And I don't think that's quite right. It's true It's true that Lula has a solid core of left of centre supporters. And you can see that by looking at the footage from his rallies. You know, these were exuberant events from real true believers with dancing and pro-Lula anthems. But he also managed to build out quite a lot beyond that. So his running mate, for example, was an anti-Bolsonaro conservative, and he won endorsements in the runoff from the two centrist candidates who come third and fourth in the first round. And his, 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 his big pitch was one of, you can have the sort of solidaristic welfare programs that you remember from my first time in as president, even though the economy is in much worse state now, but also a message of stability, economic competence, and an end to the sort of theatrical trampling of liberal democratic norms and institutions that has taken place un, under Bolsonaro. There were some both in the United States and Brazil, around the world, who thought that Bolsonaro would not concede. And it, while he hasn't necessarily been the most gracious about it, what we have not seen is a sort of Trumpian attempt to cling on to cling on to power. And in fact, I think there were some who were concerned that his supporters would would not accept this. I, I think what this demonstrates, and you can, I mean, please feel free to disagree, but that if the candidate himself says, "No, we need to go home now," and not actually, you know, and not storm whatever office there is to be stormed, that supporters will accept the results of a democratic process. Yeah. I mean, the question beforehand was, you know, the US had its January the 6th moment, the storming of the Capitol. What happens when you have a leader quite like Trump in his apparent refusal to accept defeat, but in a country with supposedly much weaker democratic institutions? Well, actually, it's it's so far touch wood, it's turned out better in that in that Bolsonaro, there was a sort of sullen silence from him for, for about 48 hours. And then he gave a public appearance in which he didn't explicitly concede. But there was a there was a tone of acceptance. And his administration has now started the transition. So, so far, so good. I don't think you can say that Brazil's transition is entirely out of the woods yet. There have been protests, as, as you mentioned, Emily. Um, truckers have blocked roads. There have been pickets outside military barracks by Bolsonaro supporters calling on the military to launch some sort of coup. And um, the inauguration of Lula isn't 
isn't until the 1st of January. It's always the 1st of January under Brazil's constitution. So there's still time for if the protests build in intensity, does Bolsonaro invoke emergency powers or claim that he's responding to something rather than instigating it? I think the, the picture is more optimistic now than it might have looked if you told us before the election that it was as narrow as it was. But I think, you know, the ultimate test will be, does does Brazil get to January the 1st without violence, without some sort of attempt to interfere by Bolsonaro or his fans? So one last question for you on this, which is, given that it's as close as it was, given that it's as polarized as it was, given the sort of fervor that many Bolsonaro supporters feel, what what would you be watching for early on in Lula's term? And we should also say, given that Bolsonaro has not handed him, like Brazil, Brazil is not in super shape, which is in part why Bolsonaro lost. So what will you be looking for from Lula come January? Yeah, it's a, it's an unenviable inheritance. Brazil's economy has has been relatively stagnant for the last years. The country was terribly scarred by the COVID-19 pandemic. Over 700,000 Brazilians died, which is proportionally more than in any other major country. Obviously, the country is extremely politically polarized. The Amazon rainforest is effectively on life support. So there's a huge number of, of urgent priorities. He's spoken about a big campaign to, to help roughly 100 million Brazilians in poverty, to enforce the country's forestry law again, which if if done correctly and, and thoroughly, could reduce deforestation in the Amazon by 90%. So that's very good news. I think one thing I'll be watching is actually where he goes on foreign policy. And if I just, just can throw this in before we move on, there's been a lot of interesting commentary about Lula's stance on Russia and Ukraine. And it is true that he is he has made some pretty abominable comments about Zelensky, Putin, about the conflict. And I think some have suggested, well, actually, is he is he all that much better than Bolsonaro? To which my answer is, well, Bolsonaro was also terrible in Ukraine, so it's not it's not worse. And I think that while, as I say, Lula's comments on Ukraine have been terrible, they're not that specific to him so much as the global south or much of the global south generally. And um, this is not some specific hang up that he has about Ukrainian sovereignty. It's it's representative of opinion in much of Latin America, in India, in parts of Africa. So I think you have to see it in that context. And I think what Ukraine and its allies do have in Lula is a leader with whom they can at least hopefully engage on this subject in a way that they couldn't with Bolsonaro. So I hope they are able to do that. It's an obvious weakness of his platform and an obvious question mark over his coming presidency, but it's one that I think could be worth watching. Well, we will continue to watch it, and we will also put the piece that Jeremy mentioned in the show notes. Right now, though, we're going to move around the globe. Israel went to the polls again for the fifth time in four years. The result? Not only is Benjamin Netanyahu likely poised to return to the prime minister's office, but extremists Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bezal Smotrich are set to enter the government. Alona, what, what happened here? Hello. Well, similarly to Brazil, Israel has got an old leader back in power, although depending where you sit on the political spectrum, you're either happy in Brazil or, you know, unhappy in Israel. Dep- depends on you. The country has been, you know, in kind of political turmoil since the government fell apart in 2018. And since then, you know, this is the fifth round of elections. It took three, there was a big kind of anti-Netanyahu block throughout that that was trying to unseat him, longest running, you know, prime minister in Israeli history who's on trial for fraud, breach of trust and bribery. And in 2021, they managed to get rid of him. The government lasted 17 months. Um, It fell apart in June and the elections happen now. And what's happened kind of interestingly is that 
you know, if you look at the actual vote count, it's still pretty deadlocked. And the polls also showed that kind of like Bibi's, that's what Israelis call Netanyahu, Netanyahu's right religious bloc is on about the same number of seats as the centre-left bloc, kind of this anti-Bibi camp. But the results of the election, unfortunately, for people who aren't in the Bibi camp, is that actually he has got enough seats, more than the other side, to build a coalition. He's now on 64, according to the the latest report I saw, which was based on a 99% count of the vote. He only needs, needs... a few partners to form that coalition. He's got around 31 seats. The extremists you talk about who have an unprecedented number in the Knesset, they joined as an alliance brokered by Netanyahu because Israel has a, a voter, an electoral threshold under which parties you know, fall out of the running if they if they don't meet it. It's something like 3.25% of the vote or four seats. So parties you join forces ahead of an election to make sure they make it into Knesset. Bibi very cleverly got these parties together, they not only passed the threshold, they really surpassed it. They're now the third largest party in in the Israeli Knesset, which is pretty remarkable. And with them and two ultra-Orthodox parties, so that's Shas, the Sephardi party, United Torah Judaism, which is the Eskenazi party, they're going to probably form a coalition. And, you know, that means it's a very male-dominated coalition because Shas and United Torah Judaism don't have any female members at all. They are very, very religious ultra-Orthodox Jews and the religious Zionism slate, I think, might only have one woman in it. So so it's a big difference. And what's happened kind of on the centre-left is that, you know, the opposite story, there was a, there were attempts to get the kind of traditional parties of the Israeli left, so that's Labour and Meretz, who are kind of liberal Zionist parties, to form an alliance so that they wouldn't the centre-left wouldn't lose those seats because it's all about the maths. If you can get a majority of 61, you can potentially form a coalition. And Labour, you know, refused to do this. Meretz actually has been teetering around the electoral threshold for years. And in fact, their old leaders, Ahavak Alon, came back this time to try to sort of save the party from oblivion. And they have not made it past the electoral threshold now. So the, all those votes basically don't, you know, don't don't count now. They, the centre-left wouldn't be able to use them. So the, those, t- those two uh, leaders are being blamed partly for the, the failure of the centre-left to form this coalition. And the other kind of, it's not 100% from what I've seen yet, but the Palestinian Nationalist Party ballad, which was on a joint slate with various other Arab and Arab majority parties, is apparently also out because they've split into different bits as well. So all those votes are not counted now. So yeah, Bibi now, he's apparently running around already, you know, he's negotiating with different partners. There are leaks today around one of the one of the members of the this very extremist far-right slate is a party called Noam, which is basically a, a homophobic party. And there are leaks out of the coalition talks so that what they're negotiating and they're negotiating things like banning uh, LGBT people from donating blood, they're negotiating reducing the kind of healthcare that transgender people get in Israel or making conversion therapy legal again. So, you know, there, there, there are some scary things on, on yeah. the table now for Israeli politics. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this with respect to various European coalitions or in the United States on this podcast. If you consider yourself center right and you ally with the far right, it's like pickles and cucumbers. You now have you now have a far right right wing. That is what happens. <laughs> we do not see extremists moderate themselves. We see moderates compromise to get the extremists on board. Hence, you end up with extremism. Could you speak a bit about why historically Israeli politicians were reluctant to do business with people like Ben Gvir? Ben Gvir is, you know, he's a very, very extreme politician. His 
party, which is part of the Jew- religious Zionism slate, is called Jewish Power. Um, so you know that tells you about its sort of Jewish supremacist stuff. You know he's he was part of he's a Kahanist, which Emily with your book Bad Jews, you'll know all about Mayor Kahana, the extremist yeah, U.S. So, rabbi. Right. So just for listeners who aren't familiar, this is an American Jew who really you know Jewish Jewish supremacy is sometimes a term used by white supremacists to like paint all Jews as as corrupt and conspiratorial. But but he really, I mean, this person really did embrace Jewish supremacy and Jewish nationalism and was the father of this movement that now, I guess, is going to be in the Israeli government. And in the context right. of Israel, that's, that supremacy means, you know, only Jews, no Arabs. It's, it's right. very racist. And, you know, Kahana was banned from the Knesset in the 80s. One of his followers, Baruch Goldstein, he was the terrorist who massacred a lot of Palestinians in in uh, the cave of the Patriarchs in the 90s. And Ben Gvir is known for having had, you know, a portrait of Goldstein in his living room, you know, at home, you know, he's really a very extremist guy. But Netanyahu, ahead of the ele- the last election as well, brokered an alliance with those parties. If there was ever a kind of a sense that like, we can go to a particular point on the right, okay, to talk about settlement, blah, 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 but that kind of racism, it's kind of not okay. Bibi, he's not very ideological. He's very pragmatic. He wants to stay out of prison and he's so he's willing to partner with these parties and with you know he's not a religious man he's willing to also partner with these very religious parties of the, of the ultra orthodox too and it's interesting what you said about the center right kind of not moderating it the right not moderating itself in the center left anti bibi block there are center right parties you know basically a very broad coalition of parties who just didn't want netanyahu to be in power so it's not even that you've got a real split between right and, and center left. What you've really got still, which is pretty amazing after five elections, is Netanyahu or not Netanyahu. So it's, right. it's not even really about right or left. So I have a couple of other questions for you. Um, one is, I, th- I think prior to this election, if you spoke to some Israeli self-professed liberals or people who would say they were in the center, would say they were anti-Bibi, they would say, we're, we, we can't even engage with the issue of Israelis, Palestinians, we need to focus on Israeli democracy and the difference between how Israeli Jews will be treated and build coalitions there. And then maybe one day we can, Mm -hmm. you know, we can try to rethink how we're treating Palestinians. To me, and this is, you know, I'm not an Israeli politics expert, but to me, one of the things that this election demonstrates is that that is not a possibility, right? Like you fully engage people in a democracy or that democracy becomes corroded. Uh, you kind of can't sideline a central issue and expect to be able to build liberal coalitions. And I just, you know, before I let you respond to that, I think it's been interesting to hear some Palestinian analysts who have said, this is not a big change, right? Like the change government of the last year didn't really make mm-hmm. life substantively or significantly better for us. Now, I think things can always go from bad to worse, but I, I do want to make sure that we include that perspective as well. But what are your what are your thoughts on all? First of all, that's really important. The, the the really frustrating thing when you look at Israeli politics, you look at any of these campaigns, first of all, there's there's no talk of policy really. No one's talking about any policies. They're all talking about you should vote for me because if not, then, then we won't be able to build a government rather than like, in my view of this country, we will make peace with the Palestinians. Nobody's talking about the Palestinians or peace with the Palestinians or this enormous elephant in the room, which is that, I mean, this is my opinion, but there's, you know, there's no, you can't have a future in that state if you don't d- deal with this conflict or the, the, the abuses of Palestinian rights, the occupied territories, right? So it's a, it's a kind of 
strange debate that there is no discussion of it. It's not a big election issue. In fact, the Israelis on the whole, I'm talking about Israeli in mainstream Israeli Jews, you know, they're not they're not thinking about this when they're voting. They're thinking about other issues. So it's very interesting to watch it from the side. There are also debates around the kind of the limits of a Jewish or an ethno-nationalist democracy, right? If you if you if you're only representing really part of the nation and you know there's still a lot of distrust throughout this campaign as well. You've had parties on the right basically saying don't vote in a center-left coalition. They will make alliances with Arabs and terrorists. Talk about liberal democracy is really limited in that in that context. And on the other point about how big of a difference it is, I mean I've been thinking about that a lot this week and talking about that with a lot of people. There's a really interesting thing happening here in the UK if you look at the way this is splitting in, in the diaspora, right? So you've got the Jewish news newspaper had a front cover a few weeks ago, basically, with a picture of Betzalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvil saying, this anti-Arab, anti-LGBT extremist party is about to go into the Knesset, had kind of quotes by them representing their views, where is the outrage? Is this the Israel we want? Okay. And then today I saw the, I think the editor of Jewish News tweeting a kind of a, a bit from a Jewish chronicle, another leading Jewish newspaper in the UK piece, basically saying, yes, they're awful, but this is Israel and Israel is a home for the Jews and we must da da da. So you've already got this split of kind of like how, where is the red line? You know, should we, should we, how awful is it? What's, what's the difference? I think that there is a difference. I can completely understand the Palestinian commentator viewpoint and like for Palestinians, this makes very little difference either way. But I think the reality is that it, you know, those parties are more dangerous. They want to pass laws that really put kind of limits on the judicial setup in Israel. They want to politically control the judiciary. They are anti-Arab, you know, they've got that anti-LGBT faction as well in there. It, it is more dangerous, I think, having parties like that in power than not. We're having a similar debate here in the United States where there are sort of establishment American Jewish institutions, like the really mainstream ones, who basically mm. said, well, we, you know, we respect the results of the election and we will continue to support and work with mm. Israel and other, some newer groups or just American Jews at large who were saying, how, how can you work with these people? Because even Absolutely. if you, I mean, you can't put aside what they say about Palestinians, even if you could, which again, just to reiterate, you can't, the views of some of these people towards Reform Judaism, which is the largest denomination here in the United States, toward intermarriage, which means one thing in Israel, but the reality is that in the United <laughs> States, like most Jews who get married today do intermarry. You can represent the views of most American Jews, or you can lobby for this particular likely constellation of people in power. But it's very difficult to do both. And so the split that we that we have seen between certain institutions and American Jewish, say, voters more generally, I think will continue. And it will be interesting to see, too, I mean, interesting in a sad sort of way, to see what the Biden administration, what, if anything, the Biden administration has to say about this. They've been quite, quite muted so far in their uh, their criticism. But yeah, one to so, one yeah. to watch. You have written on this, and we will put a link to it in the show notes. I will give you the last word on this before we move to you, ask us. It's really interesting that this is kind of happening in kind of Jewish communities across the Atlantic. But I also want, I wanted to say that on the point about the change government not being that different, the fact is that the change government, whatever it, it brought back a bit of stability in governance. The fact is that Netanyahu is about to vote 
to form a government, probably. And the kind of stuff that he's been coming out with since at least the election in 2015, when he said Arabs are going to the vote to vote in droves, you must go vote against them. That stuff should be unacceptable already to organizations like ADL, right? The, the stuff that he's been sort of flirting, flirting with, it's flirting with pretty openly, is now really out in the open with these coalition partners. So mm. I think it's kind of, you know, what some people are saying, particularly on kind of the further bits of the left in Israel, right? And among Jewish circles is, now you can't pretend anymore, right. basically. This is, this is what it right. looks like. One, one to watch. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge, Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We are going to very quickly move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. <laughs> okay, well. We did our best. Was it good enough? That's for you, the <laughs> listeners, to decide. So our question this week, I saw that someone broke into Nancy Pelosi's home. What does this mean for the midterms? Great question. The short answer is I'm not sure this means much of anything for the midterms. The slightly longer answer is that, yes, a person broke into the Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home yelling, where's Nancy, where's Nancy, attacked her husband who needed to have skull surgery. She, and thankfully, was not at home at the time. There have been real attempts on the political right here to downplay their own potential responsibility for this, despite the fact that the attacker was engaged in hateful conspiracies online for years, despite the fact that Whereas Nancy was also shouted at the Capitol on January 6th. I think Democrats haven't really tried to make this their closing message either, understandably, but somebody appears to have wanted to assassinate the Speaker of the House. That's no small thing. But I also want to really stress that this is not an isolated incident. I have a piece on this that we'll put in the show notes. You know, there are people showing up to ballot boxes who are believed to be armed and courts, Trump appointed judge in Arizona decided, yes, that's fine. I say this in the piece, so I'll I'll make this quick, but the reason that there isn't political violence all the time in the United States, this country that's awash with guns that is so polarized, is that there isn't political violence, right? Like I make fun of people who are like, but the norms a lot, but actually they do matter because we don't have another check on them. So the fact that this is now happening and was not universally condemned on the political right with specificity, right? Not just like, oh, that was bad, but that was bad. We, we should not be engaging with this kind of language. We should not be vilifying one another in this way. The fact that in, in multiple states, people are basically, we believe, engaging in voter intimidation with weapons is scary. Some people, Biden last night made a speech about democracy and how democracy is on the ballot. And some people have made fun of that. I'm sorry if you find that cloying or you find that preachy, but that is the reality. I am also sorry that basically we have, you know, some people this week have said, well, if you're saying that one party isn't doesn't believe in democracy, is it really a democracy? I don't know. You tell me. Like, <laughs> but <laughs> the reality here is that one of our two major political parties talks about not accepting re- election results, engages with these armed far right groups, and has has threatened to not accept the results of this upcoming election. So, like, what? I mean, yeah, that's that's where we are. That's the that's the state of our democracy right now. Political violence, I think, is going to continue to play a part. So that's that's the role that it's playing in the midterms. All right. Now that that rant is done, we will say thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash you ask us. That's newstatesman.com slash you ask us. The form, super exciting. Or you can tweet at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Mark Galliotti on Russia's war in Ukraine. Thank you to Jeremy and to Alona for coming and discussing elections with me today. And thanks to you for listening. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. If you have already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars, not three or four, five, and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thanks again for listening and until next time. 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.